good morning, everyone. If you were a kid in the 90s, you may remember a Gatorade commercial starring Michael Jordan. It had this catchy little tune that said, I want to be like Mike. Remember that? It, it looked it up this week because I couldn't remember the words, but it said something along the line, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be like Mike. If I could be like Mike. And you remember the commercial, it had all these kids emulating these moves made by Michael Jordan. They were posing after the shot, just like he did when he makes the winning basket, and everything was centered around, I want to be like Mike. And I'll be honest, I would love to have that boy's athletic skill, right? I have no idea, can only imagine what it would be like to, to leap from the free throw line, glide through the air, and dunk a basketball. I mean, I have no idea what that's like. It must be amazing. And as much as that is impressive, I don't know that I would want to emulate my life about Michael Jordan beyond the court of basketball. If I'm going to be like somebody, I'm going to choose something different, somebody that I can look at and see their life being lived out every single day and say, I want to be like that person. And based on our passage this morning, I have a suggestion for you. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be a man that people look to as a faithful servant of God, I want to be like Barnabas. And I hope that as we look through this passage, by the time we're done, you would say the same thing. That you would want to see the characteristics in his life being made evident in yours. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I am grateful that as we look at your word, you do give us examples of men and women who are not perfect, but who have been perfected through the work of the Spirit to become more and more like Christ. Qualities that people find to be trustworthy. People look to as, as ministers of reconciliation, of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be like those people. We want to have a life that would imitate those who are faithfully following you. So as we open your word this morning, would you stir in our heart what it means to Grow in our devotion to you. To faithfully follow Christ in everything that we do. So that when people look at our lives, that they might see you in them. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, if you will, begin reading with me uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, I want to pause here because this account, these three verses, is often overlooked, but I find it to be really amazing. And I believe it's amazing because what we see here, at least thus far in the, gospel of, or the book of Acts, is the greatest spread of the gospel that has been known up to this point. It's described as going all the way from Cyrene, which if you were to look at a map of North Africa, it would be where Libya is in northern Africa today. 
It extends all the way around to the eastern shoreline of the Mediterranean to include Phoenicia, uh, the island of Cyprus, and then all the way up to what is southeastern Turkey, uh, where Antioch would have been. So I want you to kind of picture that in your mind. It's a huge geographical area. It's the largest spread of the gospel that we've seen thus far in the book of Acts. And I want you to consider the people who were responsible for spreading that message to the extent that we see it there. Just, just think in your mind how big that is and consider the people who made that happen. And I want you to ask yourself, who are those people? What are their names? I don't know either. Because they're unnamed witnesses for Jesus Christ. I think it's amazing because the greatest spread of the gospel, at least thus far in the book of Acts, has been done by unknown disciples. Not Peter or the other apostles, not even Paul at this point in the story. These are faithful men and women who are devoted and obedient right where they are. And just look, just look in your mind's eye at what God can accomplish through everyday disciples. Unnamed witnesses for Jesus Christ, responsible for the greatest spread of the gospel up to this point in the story of Acts. I find that amazing. God is using the brutal murder of Stephen, martyred for his faith in Christ, to spread the message of the gospel through the persecution to places around the globe. What man intended for evil, God is using for good. These everyday disciples are telling others about their new life in Christ. Because remember, this is more than just a, a feel-good sermon on Sunday morning. This is a spirit-led work of redemption in the life of those who believe. Not a temporary cleansing, but a life-transforming change of heart. See, these people have a story to tell. They have a story to tell about their new life in Christ. And they are telling that story to the uttermost parts of the world. All the way from Cyrene up to the eastern Mediterranean coast, all the way into Turkey, into the city of Antioch. The gospel is threading, spreading through unknown witnesses of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. And the news about them, these unknown witnesses, reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when, they had come, uh, when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. As we've learned through the study of Acts, Jerusalem is kind of the birthplace of the early church. It's where many of the church leaders, many of the apostles still remain. So when the news of this spiritual revival that has taken place and now entered into this metropolitan city of Antioch, they send a representative from Jerusalem to go see what's happening, to, to validate the sincerity of faith of these people. And so they send Barnabas. Not one of the other apostles, they send Barnabas. Uh, apparently, they trust him enough that if Barnabas says it's valid, that's all we need to know. He has a long history of being found trustworthy. In fact, he's described there in verse 24 as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and, and full of faith. 
At least in my experience, when somebody's described as a good man, it usually relates to how they treat other people. So if a wife describes her husband as a good man, it usually means that he treats her well. If a son describes his dad as a good man, it usually means he's had a positive influence in his life. I believe they're describing Barnabas as a good man because he's a bridge builder. He's a bridge builder. He always looks to the positive and seems to have a way of helping people work together. Just think about Saul. After his conversion, no one was willing to believe this one who was trying to destroy the church is now interested in planting churches and making disciples. Nobody could believe it except Barnabas. Barnabas was the only one who was willing to listen to his story and in hearing his story believed that his faith was sincere. Barnabas is the one who built a bridge, who bridged that gap between Saul and the other apostles. He's a bridge builder. And he's the right person to send to Antioch because Antioch is a very diverse, multicultural community. He needs to be led by the Spirit. He needs to be grounded in the faith. These are qualities that are evident in the life of Barnabas, and they have been for a long, long time. Antioch is a really interesting city. It's very significant in the Roman Empire. In fact, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time behind Rome, in Alexandria. It's a very cosmopolitan center. It was a, a hub of commerce. It was known at that time as kind of a, a center of arts and entertainment. And some have described it as the Las Vegas of the Roman world. Very diverse culture, but a very pagan culture as well. A city filled with compromise and depravity, which does sound a lot like Vegas, doesn't it? But when Barnabas arrives, it says in verse 23 that he witnessed the grace of God in the Christian community. And I don't know about you, but when I see a statement like that, I ask myself, what does that mean? How did he witness the grace of God in this new Christian community? I want you to think about that for a minute. What would that have looked like for him to have witnessed the grace of God? Let me give you a few suggestions of what he might have seen. Maybe he saw a people who were previously engaged in this pagan culture who were now living a new life in Christ to transfer it, as we talked about this morning, from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ and where they find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Maybe that would be part of the evidence of God's grace. You see, Barnabas isn't pointing out all their theological shortcomings. He's looking at a sincere heart of faith. Imperfect people made new by the blood of Christ. That's the evidence of grace. See, like I said, Antioch was known for a diverse culture. It included the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, the Arabs, the Persians. Now, I want you to think about that because even in our world today, these people don't get along with each other. The Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, the Arabs, the Persians. And yet when he walked into the Christian church, he saw all of them living together in unity and love for one another. That's the evidence of God's grace. Barnabas was giving witness to the redemptive grace of God among a people who were lost in sin. Which is why Barnabas encourages them. What does he do? He encourages them to to remain faithful 
to the Lord, de- devoted in their faith. He affirmed that God's work of grace in their lives encouraged them to grow in their conviction, to remain faithful and devoted to the Lord. And these weren't just words that he shared and then moved on to the next thing. We know that Barnabas actually stayed around. He invested in their lives. He built relationships. He made disciples. He was committed to this new community of believers. And not just him. He brought someone along. Look at verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for, every, for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable members, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is interesting because Barnabas, as we know, is completely qualified to teach and lead this new community of believers in Antioch, and yet he's a bridge builder. And so he travels all the way to Tarsus in order to find Saul. Now keep in mind, as we've talked about earlier, it's been about eight to ten years since Saul was shipped off from Caesarea into his hometown of Tarsus. Okay? For most people, out of sight, out of mind. Who's Saul? But not Barnabas. He saw an opportunity in Antioch, and so he goes to look for Saul. Instead of stepping to the front and kind of taking the lead, he invites Saul to take the lead. Keep in mind, Barnabas is older. He's more experienced. He's got greater respect by this time than Saul would have had. And yet, instead of taking the lead, he invites Saul to move to the front. He hasn't seen him in 10 years. It would be acceptable maybe even expected for for Saul for Barnabas to look at Saul and say look it's been a while we haven't seen each other why don't you just come with me I'll kind of show you how things work and we'll see how things go and that's not what he does he embraces his brother in Christ says it's so good to see you God is doing a mighty work in Antioch and I can't wait for you to be a part of it they partnered in ministry over the next year It says that large crowds gathered to hear them teach. And we learn from this passage that this new community of believers in Jesus Christ were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, keep in mind, again, Antioch is this huge cosmopolitan city. It's filled with a diverse culture of people. And yet, within all this diversity... They could not find a a label to apply to this new people that would represent who they are in everything that's going on around them. There's all these sections of of the city, all these different cultures and people, and yet when they looked in each of these sections, none of them applied. This is a distinct people. These are so far different than anything else that exists in this place, we've got to make up a new name to describe who they are. And all they could do as far as determining a name is, I don't know what to call them, but all they know is that their their lives are centered around the same person. They keep talking about Jesus Christ. What should we call them? They were first called Christians in Antioch because these were people whose lives were centered and devoted to Jesus Christ. And they couldn't quit telling the story of his transforming work in their heart. Now, 
I think it's hard as we read this passage and think about that reality to appreciate it because in our world today, that's not what we see. The term Christian does not have the same impact. There are people today who just grow up in the church and just assume that they're Christian. If there are people from another country, I promise you, they come here assuming that if you're American, you must be Christian. Okay, that's true. I've heard it from many, many international students who assume when they come to America, everybody's a Christian. And quite frankly, most people claim to be one. But here's the big difference. Those same people do not live lives that are centered around Jesus Christ. And you need to know that's not what's happening in Antioch. There is no doubt. In fact, there is no existing label that will apply. There is no political, there is no cultural, there is no ethnic label that applies. They could only be described by the one who made them distinct, Jesus Christ. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Look at how it continues in verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders in the new testament see the role of the prophet closely aligned with that of the apostles they were important in establishing the early church as a community of spirit-filled ambassadors for jesus christ and part of establishing the church is protecting the church and that's exactly what we see here we see the the prophet agabus who talks about a great famine that is going to take place we see a little side note from Luke. He actually describes precisely when that famine happened. But what's most important about this whole event is the response of the people. Because I want you to notice that Agabus said that this would be a great famine. That it would be felt all over the world. So that means it included the people who were hearing this prophecy for the very first time. But look at how they responded. Instead of storing up treasure for themselves instead of storing up goods for themselves just to make sure that them and their family can make it through the famine their very first thing to do was take a co up a collection for someone else instead of thinking about how they were going to persevere through the famine they thought about other people who had needs perhaps greater than their own and what could they do to help them first they took up a collection as each one had means and sent it with Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem. I think it begs the question, why in the world would they do something like this? And here's the answer. Because they're Christians. It's what Christians do. They are compelled to care for those that need, even at the expense of their own needs, considering the needs of someone else as more important than their own. Does that sound familiar? It describes the heart of a Christian. It describes the heart of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So instead of hoarding things for themselves, their first thought was to care for someone else who had needs greater than their own. 
they are compelled to give to a people they don't even know. They've never met these people. They just know that they believe in the same Savior who set them free. That's all they needed to hear. They gave it to Barnabas and Saul and entrusted them to do the right thing. The apostles had trusted Barnabas to go validate their faith, and now those people he had gone to validate their faith trust in him, these provisions that he then takes back to Jerusalem. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be a man of integrity, above reproach, trustworthy and kind. I want to be humble. I want to be teachable, always eager to serve. I want to see the good in other people. Right? I want to see the good in other people and look for ways to, to build bridges, to, to promote unity. I want to be a minister of reconciliation. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to encourage future leaders, and I want to help them move to the front. I want to see them serve in ministry. I want to come alongside them, encourage them in their faithfulness. I want to seek the highest good in other people. Cultivate a compassionate heart, compelled to care for the needs of other people. I want to be like Barnabas. But what's most important about Barnabas is this Barnabas wanted to be more like Christ. What's most important about Barnabas is that Barnabas wanted to be more like Christ. In fact, he wanted to present every man complete in Christ, helping them become everything that God created them to be. Barnabas believed in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And that should be a distinctive characteristic of anyone who claims to be a Christian. Always on mission. Striving according to God's power, which is mightily at work in anyone who claims to be a Christian and sincerely follows Christ. Devoted to making disciples, compelled to care for those in need. Wouldn't it be awesome if people looked at our lives and could not describe us by any other label? Where we wouldn't be defined by our political alliances as a Republican or, or a Democrat. They wouldn't describe us based on our job or our occupation or our success in our career. But they would call us a Christian. That they would see our lives that are, are centered around Christ. I think the struggle in our world today, because of the watering down of that word, that when you think about what it means to be a Christian, it really doesn't look all that different than anyone else in this world. So I want to change the question a little bit, and I want you to ask yourself, how does your new life in Christ make you distinct from those who do not follow him? How does your new life in Christ make you distinct? And I would encourage you throughout this week to just spend some time reflecting on that question. Don't use the word Christian. I don't really like that word anymore because it means very little in our world today. I want you to consider what it means to have a new life in Christ. And I want you to understand in your own life how that makes you distinct in your marriage, 
in your family, in your workplace, in your classroom? What would they see in you that would stand out from anything else that's happening around them? Are you a minister of reconciliation? Do you find a way to to build bridges, to promote unity? Are you more inclined to see the good in other people, or are you more skilled at finding faults in others? Do you prefer to promote others, or do you prefer to secure your own place of influence first? Are you trustworthy? Are you teachable? Are you eager to serve? And most of you probably didn't think I could get through this sermon today without mentioning a significant event last night. (laughs) And I want you to know the Lord actually woke me up this morning with this question in my my mind (laughs) that I'm compelled to share with you. And the question is this. What would it look like in the church today if people were as excited about advancing the kingdom of God as they were about advancing to the finals of a basketball championship? That's convicting for me because I'm a huge basketball fan, right? I'm a season ticket holder, right? I show up at every game. I don't miss them. Right? Whenever they're playing on TV, I order my day around the event. And when I can, I gather people together and we watch it with each other. We have a great time. There is no question that anybody who looked at my life would without a doubt say, he is a Texas Tech fan. <laughs> would anybody look at my life and be able to say without a doubt, he is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? A man of integrity, above reproach, without compromise. That's the question I want you to consider this week because I think we can get really wrapped up and have lots of passion about lots of things, but sometimes when we come to when it comes to our faith, it's just an everyday experience. It's really no different than anything else that's going on in the world. And, and I don't think that's the way it should be. I'm really convinced that's not what's happening in Antioch. They couldn't even come up with a name to describe these people that existed in society because they were so far distinct from anyone else. Can they say that of us? There was a study that I did with a group of men a few years ago by Kyle Eidelman. It's called Not a Fan, and I've mentioned it before. It's a really good study. And there's this quote that I want to leave you with this morning before we close in song, and it says this. It says, The biggest threat, or I would say one of the biggest threats to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but are not actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to get all the benefits, but not so close it requires anything of them. See, I think maybe that would be one of the distinctives that would we, we would see in the life of Christians today is that it requires something of them. There's a sacrifice involved. There may be things that the whole world is doing around them, but they'll say, no, not me. Sometimes it has more to do with what you're unwilling to do than what you are doing that makes the distinction. 
So as we close this morning, I specifically chose this song that I asked Brian to lead us in this morning because I really feel like in many ways it, it, it should be our rallying cry. Okay, I know when tech plays, they play the Matador song and everybody loves to get involved in that. In some ways, this is our rallying cry. This is what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, distinct from the world around us. And so as you sing this song, I want you to look at these words and consider as a part of the question you'll reflect on this week, do they describe you? Okay, will you do that this morning? Why don't you stand and let's sing together. I really do hope that we are a people who would be just excited about the kingdom advancing as we are about our basketball team making it into the finals. And we would be excited because we are a part of it. We are actively involved in the mission of God. That there would be no greater obsession in our life than to know and follow Jesus Christ and to tell our story just like those unnamed disciples stretching as far as the world can be. Let's be those people. Have a great day.